The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning. <clears throat> Who uh, slept the sleep of the righteous last night? A few more of you, that's good. What about, who had no rest for the wicked? Well, it's good to be together as well on this slightly more damp morning. And it's been especially encouraging all week to see uh, so many young people in the morning sessions, even if they were up late uh, last night. Let's just really quickly uh, recap what we've uh, said so far, and then we'll pray and get into the uh, session for this morning. We've been talking about the calling of the church, and uh, we began uh, on Sunday with the hope of the church. We saw that the hope of the church is Christ and uh, faithfulness to his word, and that outside of that faithfulness, uh, we don't have any hope for the world, and in fact, we will be without hope ourselves, that Hopelessness is a mark of ungodliness, but hope is a mark of the godly life. And then on uh, Monday, we were considering, in general terms, the origin and nature of the church. So we saw and plotted the church right back to uh, Abel and faithful Abraham, and we saw that the church is the ecclesia, the called out people of God, called out in terms of the purposes of God and his kingdom. Uh, And then uh, yesterday, we were looking at the uh, character of the church, the calling of the church as an apostolic people, not only called out, but sent forth. So called out by God in terms of his work and purpose, and then sent out uh, as his kingdom people with his kingdom charter, as it were, the manifesto of the kingdom. And then uh, actually during the Q&A, we covered goodness knows how many topics um, for for a considerable amount of time and ended up in um, political philosophy and Christian jurisprudence. Not sure how we got there, but we did and uh, made our way through a number of subjects. And and yet you're still coming back for more, so that's encouraging. This morning, I want us to consider the pastoral calling of the church, the pastoral calling of the church. So before we begin, let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you that he has sent us his Spirit to be with us forever, and that he is the Spirit of truth who enlightens our eyes and opens the eyes of our understanding so that we might know you better and serve you more effectively and more faithfully as your people. Fill our hearts again, Lord, today with joy and with hope. and Help us to understand our good shepherd and the role of shepherds that you are giving us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. And then uh, we will also go to John chapter 10, John chapter 10. So Ezekiel 34 first, and then we will thumb across to John chapter 10. I want to read uh, verses 22 through 31 of Ezekiel 34. 
22 through 31. Therefore I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land. And they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and their places all around my hill a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessings. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord. When I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them, and they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown. They shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles any more. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord. And then John chapter 10, and reading verse 11 through 16. John chapter 10, reading verses 11 through 16. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling... He who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Well, we saw yesterday that in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul tells us that there are various offices that have been given to the church to perform a particular function. And he tells us there in Ephesians 4 verse 12 that they are there to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God 
to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may, we may be no longer children. And we mentioned that they are not set in the church there to uh, entertain us or in order to simply do the work of the ministry for us, but rather the offices that God has placed in the church are to equip us for the work of service, for building up the body. That is, we are saved to a purpose, all under the head, which is Christ. And since each of these offices is needed to equip us to minister, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, it stands to reason that the church itself then has an apostolic calling and an evangelistic calling and a pastoral calling and so forth. And in verse 11 there of Ephesians 4, we have pastors and teachers. Now, uh, some biblical scholars say that is descriptive of one gift, the pastor-teacher, others like to say pastors and teachers are different, but whichever way you want to slice it, uh, the pastor is a shepherding role who is also supposed to be able to teach. So whether it's one or two offices there, it doesn't really matter. The word for pastor in the Greek is poimen, and it literally means a shepherd. A shepherd. And this title is applied first and foremost to the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus Christ is called the good shepherd. In fact, in Matthew 26, in John 10, and in Hebrews 13, Jesus is referred to as occupying this office. In verse uh, 20 of Hebrews 13, we read, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Notice even here, that the role of Christ, the shepherd, is to equip us so that we will do his will. And so the pastoral function, whether it be through Christ, the good shepherd, or through pastors and elders in the church, is not supposed to be one where we are led to passivity. Every uh, analogy that Scripture gives us about the nature of the church uh, all of them are important because they, they describe to us different aspects of uh, our nature as God's people. Now, when we think about a shepherd and Christ as our shepherd or pastors as our shepherd, we might think that it's the only responsibility we then have is to stand around bleating. And, but thankfully, God has given us other images and other pictures of the role of the church. The shepherd is to equip us to do his, do Christ, the great shepherd's purposes and work. One of the reasons it's important to mention the multifaceted character of our calling is that for some of us, and I am a pastor, I uh, was an associate pastor in, in London, England for three years, and 
I'm a pastor in the church in Toronto now, and it is true, my father was a pastor also, is that some people do get the idea that the role of the pastor is literally simply to run around after them, fulfilling all of their expectations and making sure that they feel well looked after and cared for, and if they haven't been called on by the pastor and so forth in a given amount of time, they get quite upset if they don't feel they're getting sufficient attention from their pastor. Well, of course, a pastor does have the role of caring for the sheep, but that does not mean wandering around the church with a box of Kleenex, simply uh, mopping brows and blowing noses, but rather equipping us to be serving each other. That's the function, that's the purpose. Now, in Ezekiel 34, which we read together, we have a remarkable promise beginning at verse 22, of the great shepherd's promise to save his flock in the church age. Verse 23 tells us, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now who, of course, is the descendant of David, the son of David, the root of Jesse, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25 goes on to deal with the nature of the covenant of peace he makes with his flock, the the pleasant pastures, the joy, peace, blessing, security with which he is going to bless his people when the Christ, the son of David, comes. And so verse 30 tells us, they shall know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my sheep the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God. And this promise comes to full fruition in Jesus Christ, who gathers together Jew and Gentile, John 10, we read it together, I am the good shepherd. And The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I know my own, my own know me, as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will heed my voice, so there shall be one flock and one shepherd. In other words, Jesus identifies himself as the shepherd promised in Ezekiel 34. One flock, one shepherd, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. So we have this clear teaching that Jesus is the great and the good shepherd, and a pastor is one who serves as an under-shepherd, an under-shepherd in the life of the church. But there's more. Christ was sent as a shepherd to teach, to nurture, to instruct, to disciple, and to lay down his life. And we've seen already this week that in the Great Commission, part of the mandate of the church as our good shepherd, Christ, and as our local shepherds equip us to serve God's purposes, we are sent out to teach the nations all things that I have commanded you, to disciple the nations and to lay down our lives for one another. In other words, the church has a pastoral calling, a calling to each other and to the wider community in which God places us. So it's vital that in the life of the church that we be governed, and this is what I've been 
trying to say so far this week, from beginning to end, by the purposes of God. That is what has to inform the life of the church, and that's why the offices, these offices have been given to the church. What has replaced, in many respects, in the modern view, oftentimes the wholeness of God's Word for the church, is something that we can technically call praxeology. Praxeology from praxis to do, and it stems from the thinking not of the apostles, not of Scripture, but actually of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and others who have followed in their line of thinking. And the basic idea is that knowledge, true knowledge, arises not from revelation, but from experience. And then what I am to do is to reflect on my experience that should lead to action. So rather than God's Word being the final authority in the life and ministry of the church, my experience becomes the source of authority. I then reflect on my experience, leading to what some commentators today call orthopraxy. These are buzzwords in the field of missiology. And really, this week, I've been... All of this is missiology. That is, we've been dealing with the mission of God through his church. The mission of God through his church. The idea is that then our, our knowledge that comes from our experience will lead us to an orthopraxy, a right praxis. Knowledge, then, is seen not in terms of the unshakable truth of God's Word, but in terms of historical development. That, in a sense, knowledge and truth are progressively changing throughout history. So that what was true for my great-grandparents' generation may not necessarily be true today. So we have, we have uh, growing fringes of the modern evangelical church that say that, well, when it comes to key ethical issues, key, key uh, practical issues for the church, we need a moratorium to see what society is doing. And as we reflect on our experience in the cities or in our cultures and so forth, that will then inform what we believe about these big ethical issues or the direction of the church. Let me give you a couple of really simple illustrations of orthopraxy. It came up in one of the Q&A times. Church discipline, one of the functions of the pastoral office of the church is church discipline. The good shepherd disciplines us, and the shepherds that are over us help uh, us to understand that church discipline is the right and privilege of every member of the church. Hebrews tells us the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastises every son that he receives, and if we're not subjects of God's discipline, then we are actually illegitimate. How many of us really see church discipline functioning in the life of the church today? Well, what's happened is that our culture, some of us do, and that's if we do see it, wonderful. We practice, uh, we, we seek to practice in a godly way church discipline at Westminster. Most of the churches I've been in over the last 20 years have not practiced church discipline. Why? Well, because of our culture. Our culture says you don't stand on people's toes, you don't get involved in somebody else's life, you don't stick your nose in. It's none of your business. You don't judge. Don't be judgmental. 
Scripture doesn't tell us never to make a judgment. It tells us not to judge in terms of our own standards. Scripture actually tells us we are to inspect the fruit of one another's lives. If we can't make any judgments at all, then there's no such thing as church discipline, is there? That's one of the areas where praxeology has come in and said, look, laissez-faire approach to the life of the church. Whatever, however, whenever, don't be judgmental. Another area might be public worship. And uh, some of you have been talking to me about some of these things this week. Instead of our worship being informed by the Word of God, we start to think, well, what does our culture want? Entertainment. So our worship must not be God-focused on the sacraments and upon His Word and upon godly worship, but instead, let's watch Jerry Springer on a Sunday morning in church. Let's spend our time trying to entertain the people in the hope that we are being relevant and the consequence is the emptying of God's church, not the filling of it. Those are two very practical examples. A broader example might be what happened at the beginning of the 20th century with what was called the social gospel movement, which losing its focus on the word of God and yet at the same time recognizing that the church has a purpose in the world to bring about the kingdom of God, it abandoned God's means of the kingdom and said what we need is some sort of social activism, simply. So if we're social activists, well, then we're doing the work of the kingdom and the gospel disappeared into the background till it ceased to be, till the church ceased to be doing anything that the world wasn't already doing. So the spirit of the age then informs the thinking of the church rather than Christ being over his church and indeed over culture. Christ is not against culture, neither is he inculturated in culture. He's over culture. You don't find Paul saying, let's set up a Christian amphitheater and do Christian gladiatorial contests in Athens or in Rome, you know, and do a sort of sermon afterwards. The God spot, as it were. Ezekiel, though, tells us about the unity of the church and its calling in the world. And Hebrews 13 reveals the same concrete purpose and calling of the church in terms of this pastoral ministry. The shepherd, the great and the good shepherd, rules over his kingdom. I think I mentioned on the first night that some of the great... uh, Kings and monarchs and statesmen of antiquity called themselves the shepherd. Because I'm going from memory, I can't remember which of the uh, major uh, kingdoms from antiquity that it was, but one of them had the symbol of the shepherd's staff. Christ says, no, I am the good shepherd. And he makes a promise through the seed of David that Christ will do this work of feeding his flock. And that Feeding will bring about not praxis, not natural consequences. There will be, in fact, supernatural consequences in the world when Christ leads his flock. Well, we read about them in Ezekiel 34. There is an impact even on the land, upon the fruitfulness of God's people, upon their protection and so forth. 
You know, the presidential oath of office in America used to be taken on Deuteronomy 28. The blessings and cursings for faithfulness. Those things mattered. There was a belief and a conviction amongst our forebears that when we are faithful, I'm not talking about health and wealth nonsense now, see a yacht, claim it, receive it, and all that kind of thing. Doesn't work. I've tried it many times. <laughs> Never had that yacht. <clears throat> no, I'm talking about what God promises. What God promises for His church. And we have to believe His promises. That there are supernatural consequences. I remember when I first heard about the ministry of Charles Simeon in Cambridge, a man who uh, went to Cambridge and took up a a church there and and began to preach the whole counsel of God, and he emptied the church. They didn't like it, because they weren't really believers. And he kept on preaching for about 20 years, and people thought, this guy's mad, preaching to a handful of people, and then God thought about supernatural consequences in the ministry of Charles Simeon. And the church couldn't contain the numbers of people in an age of starvation for the word who were coming to be fed. The pastoral ministry expressed through Christ and through his church is one which tells us in Ezekiel 34 that the world itself is to be impacted and transformed by God's people as he leads his flock the prince of his flock being Christ. Now in John 10, verse 16, we have the word there sometimes translated fold is better translated flock because a flock can be divided up into various folds. And there are various folds. We here at NBC this week represent various folds of the church. Different nations, different peoples, different denominations. And the fold, though, these various folds are, in the end, one flock under one shepherd. And the under-shepherd, the pastor or the elder, has a variety of responsibilities to that flock. Not the entertainment, actually, of the flock. But the feeding of the flock as a primary responsibility, which comes about, of course, through the Word of God. St. Augustine, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, I don't know where time goes when I'm speaking here, chapter 10, verse 16, stresses the hearing of the voice of the shepherd. Augustine says, they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock. He emphasizes that it's in the hearing of the voice of Christ that we realize that we are his flock, that we are his people and that we have a purpose. So there's a stress on the faithful proclamation of the word, which is reinforced again by John Calvin, who brings a similar emphasis. He says, and I quote, These words mean that when the church submits to Christ alone and obeys his commands and hears his voice, then only is it in a state of good order. I think that's true. We're promised in our text in Ezekiel 34 and John 10, what we're ultimately promised is a great in-gathering of the nations. 
Jesus himself said, I have many sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. You remember he said that many shall come from the east and from the west, shall sit down in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham. There's Abraham again. He keeps turning up, doesn't he? The whole world then is to be brought under, finally, the one shepherd. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The term shepherd or pastor expresses then authority to teach and to guide and to exercise responsibility and authority. Now, yesterday I said that we are all ministers, and that is absolutely true. We are given authority. John, the Apostle John, says, we have an anointing from the Holy One. Each of you today has an anointing from the Holy One as a minister of God in the place that God has put you and the task that He has put in your hand, the calling that He has given to you. We are sent out in the world with a teaching mandate to instruct and to guide and so forth. Now, in the life of the church... In the structure of the church, the pastor or the elder has a specific responsibility to give a lead in this matter. Now, in our contemporary culture, again, any office which carries with it authority and responsibility is usually viewed with suspicion and mistrust. And sometimes this is because pastors have sought to lord it over others and not care for the flock. And people have been wounded. There are a lot of wounded sheep in the church today. There are a lot of malnourished sheep in the church today. You can see their ribs. And it should be remembered, and every pastor should remember, that their calling and responsibility is one of service as an under-shepherd. Shepherd was not a glamorous role in the New Testament. They stank for a start off. They had very low social status. That's why you have in the coming of Christ, in the incarnation, both the low and the highborn who come to greet Christ. There were shepherds out in the fields. I mean, you slept in the woods. You couldn't have a shower like you'd have at NBC in the morning, you know, electrical hookup and all of that. You slept in the woods. You lived with the sheep. Both kings and shepherds greeted Christ when he came. The calling is to one of service. And we are to be releasing others in the work of ministry with fullness of joy. That's the pastoral responsibility. And at the same time, there's a responsibility on the people that the shepherd watches over. They are not to make his work a burden, but a joy. Not a misery, because of constant bleating and whining, but a joy as he serves. The uh, wonderful Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs, in expounding 2 Corinthians 1.24, says this of the pastoral office. He says, The end of the ministry, that's pastoral ministry, is not to tyrannize over people's souls, to sting and to vex them, but to minister comfort, to be helpers of their joy. That is, to help their salvation and happiness, which is here termed, 
1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.24, joy, because joy is a principal part of happiness in the world and in the world to come. This is the end both of the word and of the dispensation of the word, of the ordinances of salvation, of the sacraments, and all our joy may be full. As our blessed Savior says, these things I have spoken unto you that your joy may be full. Everything Christ said to us is for our joy, for our blessing. And so the pastor's job is to help people enter into the joy and blessing of being a servant and a minister of Jesus Christ. Pastor Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor, said of the pastoral ministry, all Christ's ways of mercy tend to, tend to and end in the saint's joy. It seems uh, to me now appropriate, given that there is a family seminar on today as well, having talked about the pastor, Christ the Good Shepherd, and the pastoral office, to speak of fathers as pastors, parents as pastors. We're constantly told in Scripture that the pastoral calling of the church is like that of a father with their children. That helps us to understand why qualifications for eldership in the local church are familial qualifications. He's supposed to be able to govern his family and his home well and be able to teach and so on and so forth. These are qualifications for pastoral ministry in the church because the home is our first church, the home is our first school, the home is our first government, The home is the first vocation of the child. Paul actually, in Philippians 2.22, tells the, the church at Philippi that Timothy served with him as a son with his father. As a son with his father. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12, let's go there. 1 Thessalonians, just before Timothy. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. Let's start with verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly And blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul reminds us of the image of the father enabling his children to walk worthy of God's calling in the kingdom. The Apostle John, the Apostle of love, in 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. So we have this image constantly in Scripture of fathers and children. All fathers are called to be pastors in their homes. And I think if we took that 
calling seriously, the church would be in a very different position than it is today. I believe I'm convinced that a recovery of the pastoral function of the home is critical to the recovery of the life of the church in our time. This view has very deep roots in the history of the Hebrew nation because in the Jewish home, in the Hebrew nation, the home was a sanctuary that included worship. It was considered a house of prayer. It was a sanctuary that included learning. It was a house of study. It was a community that was also a serving community, a house of assembly. The dinner table in the Jewish home played a very, very important role because it was there, the family altar, the family table, where food was served, but also God's Word was ministered to the family. Where the father taught his children and the words of the law were exchanged. Jesus, in quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, tells us man does not live by bread alone. And so the family table, which Christians for many centuries have recognized as a very important aspect of family life, has its roots right there. Again, we must be careful that we don't lose the family table to excessive numbers of TV dinners and everybody eating at completely different times because we lose the cohesion of family life and the opportunity for prayer together and then perhaps following the meal an opportunity for family worship and instruction it all stems from the hebrew father who served in a sense as a pastor instructing his own family in the torah the new testament reminds us actually that we are to exhort one another with psalms and with hymns and with spiritual songs making melody in our hearts to God. In, in a very important study called Our Father Abraham, the Jewish Roots of the Christian Faith, Professor Marvin Wilson identifies three key applications for the church today in terms of fathers as pastors in the home. This is what he says, and I quote, Foundational to all theory on the biblical concept of family is the Jewish teaching that the home is more important than the synagogue. In Jewish tradition, the center of religious life has always been the home. The church has yet to grapple seriously with this crucial concept. Unfortunately, many Christians believe that it's God's purpose that the church function as the main formative influence in the spiritual development of the family. The church has often taken the place of the family. The church was never intended to be a substitute for the home. The church and the school are supplementary to the home. They do not replace the home. This is important because there's no evidence in Scripture that God's plan with respect to the home bearing a primary obligation for teaching, nurturing, and caring for each member of the family has been set aside. Wilson goes on to say, the Jewish faith has long taught that it is not to be viewed or to function merely as a religion with paid professionals called by congregations to perform religious duties and services. Indeed, even the rabbi is considered a lay person. Any member of the congregation may be called upon to read from the Torah or lead the congregation in prayer. So a parent is a lay person responsible for the teaching of their children. This all helps us to get past any sense of a spectator mentality in the life of the church. 
in the life of God's kingdom. That we as parents, and especially fathers, bear a responsibility and an obligation for the instruction and the care for our families. You know, the Apostle Paul actually says that he who does not care for his own, in this case he's talking about not only their spiritual care, but their physical and uh, uh, financial well-being. He who does not care for his own has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. That's not the gospel according to Joe Boot. That's the Apostle Paul. Worse than an infidel. That the provision for the needs of our families lies with primarily with fathers. That's our role and our responsibility. Now, of course, there are times when we may be out of work and so forth. Paul is not addressing that. But he is dealing with the idea of idleness and the passing the buck of our responsibilities. The primary cause of social decay by any social indicator and any social study in our time is fatherlessness. Fatherlessness. Families without fathers or with absent fathers, the children endlessly struggle. No provision is made. And you know what happens? The state steps in to be the father of our children. And the state has absolved father of their responsibilities through welfare programs. Where the mother and the children don't need to be provided for by the father, even if he's delinquent. He just fathers more children through various other women. And that's what's happening now with close to half of all children in Britain being born outside of marriage. And then we wonder why we've got problems. But people don't like to hear it in our time, of course. But it's not just Christians saying that. I read a book recently called Our Culture, What's Left of It. Startling book by a British doctor, a social commentator called Dalrymple, in which he says these very things. After 30 years working as a doctor in London. I don't want to get way late. I've got 10 minutes. St. Peter says then that as we as God's people in the life of the church honor the role of the pastor and take up our responsibility as a priesthood of all believers, he tells us in 1 Peter 2.5, you also like living stones, living stones are being built together into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What an incredible passage. Here we're being given an image. We're being told that like the Levites and the priests of old, now the entire church, all of God's people with access to the Holy of Holies, we are now a priesthood ministering the life of God to the world. It's an image drawn directly from the Old Testament temple And so we have to stop viewing the church and the home as physical edifices. You've got a house. That is not the home. The house is bricks and mortar. The church building is bricks and mortar. Those physical edifices, as important as they are, are not the church and the home. We are a community, whether family or church, as ministers of God to one another. 
And perhaps the most important of the pastoral functions in the family is teaching. That's not to say we don't have a responsibility for nurture and care and compassion and so forth. We've talked about those. But critical to the life of the family and the pastoral office is teaching. In fact, uh, interestingly, forgive me for referring to Jewish tradition for a moment, but in the Jewish Talmud we read, He who withholds the lessons from his pupils robs him of the heritage of his father. Robs him of the heritage of his father. How important it is that we as Christian parents are passing on the heritage of the faith, of the promises to our children. This is how strongly the Hebrew nation felt about the centrality of education in the Word of God by both parents to teach. Turn to Proverbs with me. Book of Proverbs, very quickly, just a couple of quick quotations. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 8. My son, hear the instruction of your father. Do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. And in Proverbs 6, verse 20, again we see both parents involved in this, in both texts, in Proverbs 6, verse 20, and Proverbs, by the way, is an application, a practical application of the law. Proverbs 6, verse 20, My son, keep your father's command, and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart, Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. When you awake, they will speak with you. What a marvelous passage about instruction. Scripture views the teacher, the pastor, as in the life actually of any child, as a representative of the father. So if you want to actually assess your children's influences and education, think of every teacher in the life of your children as a representative of the father in the house. That's what they are. They are. You are, when you hand your children over to a Sunday school teacher or to a pastor or to a teacher, you are saying to your child, this person represents me and my authority to you. That's what you're saying. That's how we should think about the education of our children. And so we see this father and son relationships constantly in the Scripture. Elijah with Elisha. The writer of Proverbs always calls the one he's speaking to his son. And we know that Paul viewed Timothy as his son. So consider carefully those who teach your children. Nothing was more important to these biblical writers. Deuteronomy 4.9, teach them to your children and to their children after them. So it becomes obvious when you look at all of that, why when Paul then comes to the question of appointing pastors and elders over the flock in 2 Timothy, he says they must be able to teach, apt to teach, able to instruct. Because if they can't, they can't be building up the life of the body of Christ. Think about Timothy as a very good example. 
Bible actually tells us where Timothy's godly roots came from. Do you remember? His grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, are given special mention in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. So Paul has been mentoring Timothy, but Paul credits his grandmother and his mother with Timothy's spiritual substance and ability at a very young age to be able to lead the church of God. So if you're a mother or a grandmother here, doesn't that make you feel quite important and significant? That's how Paul regarded the influence of mothers and grandmothers. And once again, joy is supposed to be central in God's pattern. When God our Father rears His children, we're told in Scripture that God loves His children. We're told that He pities His children in Psalm 103. We're told that He rejoices over His children. Joy, thankfulness, rejoicing are central to the Father heart of God for His children. And so we saw that even in the teaching of Jesus in John 15, 11, He says, I've spoken these things to you that your joy, that my joy, my joy, He says, might remain in you. And that your joy may be full. Anybody here think Jesus was miserable? No. He says, my joy is to remain in you so that your joy will be full. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are endless pleasures. This is a far cry from the modern view that children are a nuisance, that children are inconvenient impositions upon our freedom. Jenny and I were in England for a few weeks for her sister's wedding. We never thought it would come, but it finally did. (laughs) And our girls were uh, 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 bridesmaids. And uh, Jenny was talking with um, the lady doing uh, uh, her sister's makeup the morning of the wedding. And uh, they were talking about children and so forth. And she said, well, I don't think I'm going to have children because I've heard it alters your body. And I don't want my best features being destroyed by childbearing. Well, this is the attitude today toward, for many towards having children. But God says that children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And that we should rejoice like God rejoices over us in our children. The writer of Proverbs says, A wise son makes a father glad, but the father of a fool has no joy. Who doesn't know that's the truth? The pastor or father is one who walks with his children, worships with his children, prays with his children, studies with his children, works with his children, prays with his, plays with his children, serves God with his children. Have I arrived in these areas? No. I just talked to my wife. She's here this morning. But I'm working on it. So that my children will not be a pain to me in latter years. This is the joyful task of pastoring our families. J.W. Alexander wrote about the joy of pastoring our children. Listen to this very, very carefully, friends, what he says. 
No man knows when the great act of his life takes place. No man knows when he is doing the greatest good. The old monk who directed young Martin Luther possibly did not know, so imp- probably did nothing so important in his life. Sometimes it is a child, and whom, and whom would a Christian more joyfully influence than the son of his bosom? It is for him we labor, pray, suffer, and live. How do we know but the chief purpose for which God has spared our lives is that we may form an instrument for his work in our own family? There was a Christian man in the medieval period called Grota who saw the problems in the church and tried to move forward in terms of reformation and it wasn't going anywhere fast so he decided he was just going to start schools, Christian schools. And when he died, everybody thought that this man was a failure. Gerhard Grauter. Hundred years later, the reformers were all in his schools being nurtured and brought up in the faith. Let me conclude with a couple of examples of the diversity of the responsibility that we have. As fathers, we need to be reminded to act like men as fathers in our own homes. And that means not being distracted by trite amusements. One of the biggest things, I think, that has sapped the vitality of men is sports. Let me qualify. I play for a soccer team in Toronto every Friday, 9 o'clock. My children are in bed. Jenny's tucked up with a hot chocolate and a slab of galaxy. And I go and play soccer. And during special events like the World Cup, I'm as keen as anyone to watch some of the games. But you know what? Some men are so addicted to sport and other activities like golf and so on and so forth that they lose the ability to be able to focus on their primary responsibilities. And they are distracted by trite amusements away from the primary responsibilities that God has given to them. Our our vital energy can be sapped by trite amusements. Ladies, it can be daytime TV and soap operas. You know, I know a lot of people who know more about what's going on in the soaps than they actually do about what's going on in the real world. And people talk about it as though these people are real. This is ridiculous, isn't it? And men, sometimes with their sports, it goes beyond. You know, Calvin used to bowl on a Sunday afternoon. Right? A lot of reformed people don't know that. There's nothing wrong with healthy recreation. But when we get addicted to something, and it's every Saturday, we can't miss the game, we can't miss this, and we're not actually teaching and instructing our own children, we have a problem. And we're not thinking about the kingdom of God, but rather how the maple leaves are doing. Frankly, friends, it's a puck on a bit of ice. What is the big deal? Okay, England lost to Germany again in the World Cup. Okay, I'm down about it for a few hours. But in the end, what's the big deal? It's a sack of air being kicked around the field. It's not the kingdom of God, is it? 
There were men who took these responsibilities seriously in the history of the church, and we do need to follow some of their examples. I wish I could talk about them all in detail. I can't. I've got to finish now. But John Calvin was one of them. He's had a bad rap because people don't know anything about him usually. All they've heard about is some uh, a vague incident about a guy called Savitus and uh, possibly uh, a, a misunderstanding of the doctrines of grace. But on a Thursday, John Calvin was found in what was called the consistory listening to hundreds of practical cases as a pastor brought every year by the city council. And he applied biblical teaching to all of the following areas. Adultery, fornication, disputes about engagement, weddings, family quarrels, incest, rape, sodomy, prostitution, buggery, voyeurism, abortion, child neglect, child abuse, education, spousal abuse, mistreatment of maids, family property, embezzlement, sickness, divorce, marital property, inheritance, and on and on. Every Thursday, as a pastor, cared for and nurtured his family. He spoke almost every day of the week. And he changed the face of Europe and subsequently of the world. You wouldn't have America today if it wasn't for John Calvin. John Bunyan. You all know who John Bunyan is, don't you? Do you know where and when John Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress? In prison because he was thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. They said, stop preaching the gospel. Stop preaching the kingdom of God. He said, no. You know, he wasn't formally educated. He only ever read four books in his entire life. He wrote 60. <laughs> four books. The Bible, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Luther on Galatians, and The Plain Man's Path to Heaven. He was one of the first to suffer for dissenting principles. He had, the biggest pain to him about accepting going to jail and saying he was going to continue to preach the gospel was his, his deep concern for his family. He had a number of children. He had a little girl called Mary who was blind. And actually, the jailers took pity on him, and they let the little girl come in and often sleep in the jail with her father to be by his side. He could have got his liberty at any time if he'd said, no, I'll conform to your rules. It took 12 years before that man was released, and he ended up preaching then in Bedford for the rest of his life. But it was in prison that he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, a book more read than any other book outside of the Bible. An uneducated tinker in prison. So if the next time you're thinking, well, what can I do? An uneducated man in prison wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Because he took the mandate for teaching seriously. John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, was one of his uh, contemporaries. And one day, Charles II was mocking John Owen because he had gone to hear John Bunyan speak. And do you know what John Owen said? He said, may it please your majesty, could I possess that tinker's ability for preaching, I would most gladly relinquish all of my learning. He died in 1688, and his last words to his family and friends were, Weep not for me, but for yourselves. I go to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will, through the mediation of his blessed Son, receive me, though a sinner, where I hope we ere long shall meet to sing the new song and remain everlasting joy, world without end.
That's faith, isn't it, friends? That's hope. That's the pastoral calling of the church. The same is true, I haven't got time to talk about it now, of John Knox, one of my favorite heroes in the history of the church, who through being a galley slave on a French ship and uh, knocked from pillar to post, and uh, when he was first called to the ministry by the local congregation, burst into tears and ran out the room. Yeah, John Knox, who preached in such a way that Mary, Queen of Scots, burst into tears, didn't feel he was worthy of being a preacher. And yet his work as a pastor and a minister so transformed Scotland that by 1560, in the space of two years, it had an evangelical parliament, and Scotland went on to be the nation that sent more missionaries throughout the world than any other nation in the history of the church. And Charles Spurgeon, who is often only thought of as the prince of preachers, a man with a silver tongue, who actually, by the way, spoke with a very thick Essex accent, not with the Queen's English like myself, <laughs> but with a thick, almost uh, unintelligible country bumpkins accent. When he went to London, that's what people thought he was, a sort of redneck, as we would say in North America. And Spurgeon's life was, they called him the shepherd of the city. The man whose name was helps because he started more schools, orphanages, adult literacy programs, benevolent funds than, I, than any other pastor I can think of. He compared London in the mid-19th century to Sodom in its most putrid days. He said there were 80,000 prostitutes working the city. But he took his responsibility and calling as a pastor seriously. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent to us the great and the good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he showed us the way of life. We thank you that he is the way of life. We thank you, Lord, that today your spirit lives in us and quickens us and enables us to be the people you are calling us to be. We thank you that you are our shepherd and we are the people of your flock. We thank you, Lord, that you opened our ears to hear your voice. We have heard your voice and you have called us by name. And Lord, we know that you are calling us to be a shepherding people, a people that would serve you in this world to shepherd the communities that you have placed us in, to shepherd our families and to support the shepherds that you have placed over us in your church. Help us as we seek to understand this better and serve you more effectively in the days ahead. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.